please grab your Bibles again, and as I said, we'll be reading from Second Peter. Uh, we're going to be reading verses ten through to thirteen. So Second Peter, chapter three, beginning at verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct of godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word, and would you join me as we pray before we dive into this together. Lord God, as we explore your word together now, we thank you that you have spoken to us in such a way that we can see and understand the words that you have written to us. Yet we know that there is a spiritual truth to these words that goes beyond just the language in which it's presented, and we pray that your spirit might reveal that to us this morning, that we might know you more, that we might love you more, that we might be better equipped to live for you in everything we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today is the second last sermon we have in Second Peter, and we're looking particularly at verses 11 through to 13 this morning. Now, if you're looking at that going, well, there's only really three verses you're covering. That's going to be a short sermon. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. not going to drag it out, but there is a lot within these verses here. Now, we're looking here at the return of Christ, which is a glorious thing. This, uh, this Greek word here, the parousios, a return after an absence, it's a glorious, glorious thing that we are looking forward to. Amazing thing that we look to. Last week we saw in particularly verses 1 to 10, Peter say, this is going to happen. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, will return. He is coming back. He said, yeah, there's going to be people out there though who don't like that. People who will scoff, who will tease, who will make fun of what we believe. Who will try and convince us that Jesus isn't going to return. But their arguments, they're just empty. They don't hold any substance. They ignore every evidence that God put right before their eyes. But those of us who have the Spirit, we know those things are true. We can trust in this. So last week, Peter said Jesus is coming back. This week, we see a little bit more about what we should do about the return of Christ. Last week, we saw some of the things we can do. But this week, we begin to hopefully dive even more into that. So beginning with our first point this morning, we have the end of all things. And what a hopeful place to start. The end of all things. What an uplifting place to be. I don't know about you, but over the last 18 months, I've had some incredibly uninspiring conversations with different people. It's been almost depressing sometimes. You talk to a stranger, you ask them how they're going, and you get some pretty negative stuff come back. And there's sometimes almost this existential crisis of what's the point of being who I am? There's no point to any of this. It's all doom and gloom. There's real fatalism being put forward by media and people in the street. People going, I really can't do anything. 
I can't change what's going on. I can't change what's going to happen. So why bother caring? Why bother trying? I'll just do my best to, to look after my little patch of turf as best I can. But it's probably going to end badly anyway. I'm going to try. I'll feel good for the effort, but that's about all I can do. I'm not sure if you guys have had those conversations with people. Now, it's not a conversation, but the type of conversation with people. And it's really struck a chord for me as we look at these verses in 2 Peter this morning. Because in a lot of ways, Peter does begin to to deal with the end of the world as we know it. The world is going to burn up. It's going to melt away. It's going to be dissolved in fire. And Peter, in this part here, as well as Revelation, are really the, the two places in the Bible where it's spoken about the end of the world with such clear references to fire. It's mentioned elsewhere, but it really gets focused on here. And maybe we adopt some of that mindset of people we bump into on the street. If it's all going to get dissolved, if the world's all going to burn up, why bother? Why care? Why try? And yes, last week we talked about being wise and using the time that God gives us while he is being patient and long-suffering. The blessing that is to us that we're saved because God's patient, we're saved because God is long-suffering, we can share that gospel with people. But maybe this just all feels too much. Maybe we look at things like 2 Peter and these just short verses here this morning and we, we might feel that overwhelming sense of just fatalism. It's all going to end. What's the point? As you probably know, there is a point. From the kids' talk, from what we saw last week, from everything we've seen working through 2 Peter up till now, there is a point. There is application from last week's text as well as today's text. And really, we need to be able to look not just from our perspective and our immediate circumstances, we need to see what Peter is telling us about God. What is God showing to us here? Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, Peter's writing to Christians. If you're a Christian here today, this is true of you. He talks about people who have been called to his glory and virtue, by which, we've been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's actually a hopeful backdrop to what Peter's writing. There is a backdrop of hope, there is a backdrop of God's eternal glory that we are being called into. As we look at this, we, we, we start... Here, verse 10 really is a, serves as a, a strong link between what came last week and what comes this week. And again, we're going to focus more on verses 11 to 13, though. We should pay really close attention to the fact that verse 11 really does relate to the coming destruction of the world. We also see in verse 13 that even though the world is going to be destroyed, there is a hope of a new heavens and a new earth. These are the bookends for our text today. The world's going to end, but new heaven, new earth, hopefulness bookends this. Now, if any of you ever pick up a commentary to follow along with what I preach on, you might pick up commentaries that begin to debate what Peter's talking about when he says the world will be destroyed. 
because Peter actually uses a present tense here. And then it's potentially currently happening. And for people, they'll take that to mean a link it to passages like Romans chapter 8, 21, where the creation groans under the weight of sin to understand that this destruction is already happening through decay as a result of sin. Now, others say that while that is the case, yes, there's also a specific event being brought to view here by Peter. And I think that second one of understanding the world we live in is struggling under the weight of sin. It's groaning under the weight of sin. Yet there is this glorious event Peter's looking forward to. As we look at the end of all things, really what we are doing here is setting our focus up to see Christ's return. Christ will return. Christ will judge the earth. And there is a hope of righteousness in that. The point as we begin this morning, and I say begin, come to the end of our first point, we're not really beginning, beginning. As we get to the end of the first point here, the point is that what we have here on earth is not going to be the same forever. It just won't be. This can lead us to apathy, but our lives should not be apathetic. And this is where we really get into the heart of what Peter's talking about today. We live holy lives. Now, you might have noticed I called the other sermon this morning, Holy, Holy. Uh, I did give you a break from my attempts at alliteration last week. I know it's not quite two H words in a row. But this is where Peter is driving us towards this morning, living holy lives. As Christ is returning, but what sort of person are the followers of Christ going to be between now and then? Let's knuckle down into those sorts of people Peter wants us to aim towards. Now, even in Peter's original, uh, Peter's question he puts forward here of what sort of person you're going to be, we know where Peter's driving. We know where he's going. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, those qualities that supplement godliness. It's leading to holiness, it's leading to godliness, brotherly affection, patience, all those awesome, amazing qualities. Amazing things that we are heading towards. Now, as we read this as well, get in verse 11. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This doesn't carry across to the English, but from the Greek, Douglas Moo suggests that what's being presented here is how wonderful, how glorious are you going to be? And it's obviously by the grace of God and the work of God, but that's really the undertone of this question. And Peter provides an answer that matches that undertone within the Greek. It matches it to a T. He says we are to live lives that are holy and godly. Another funky thing that happens with translation here is that when Peter talks that we are to live in holiness and godliness, if we were to do an exact translation of this, it would be holinesses and godlinesses. It's plural. But that doesn't make sense in English. That's more like the sort of questions I write in a Bible study for you guys. English doesn't quite work sometimes. You see, it's in lots of different ways that we're meant to do this, in every part of our lives. We are to have entirely holy lives, shaped by the person of God, reflective of God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercy. All those qualities we read in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, are to demonstrate God's character and how we live. And in doing that, it supplements our faith. It builds us up in our faith. Peter is driving home here that there is an expectation on every single Christian 
on everyone who says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour. Yes, I believe that there are three persons in one God. I am saved only by the work of God and nothing else. Every single person who says those things, Peter says, is to have, there's an expectation that every area of our life is pure. Peter's drawing on so many things that he is covered already through this letter. We're really getting into the conclusion of this letter here. And he also draws on what he said in chapter 1 of 1 Peter in verse 16 there. And he says the reason we should live holy lives is because God is holy. Now that is a reference to Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44. God commands all of his people, all of his people are told, be holy because I am holy. But do we do this? We look at our lives. Do we do this? Can we do this? Can we be godly in every area of our lives? Can we be holy in every area of our lives when we are fallible, broken, sinfully inclined human beings who commit wrongs against God even when we don't mean to? These sorts of questions pop up in our minds. In some ways, I think this is why Peter has emphasised both last week as well as at the end of chapter 1 about the way that God's word was given to men. By holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit. We don't live holy, godly lives because we will ourselves do that because we choose we're just going to do that we live holy and godly lives when God's spirit is working within us and it's through the word of God that we are better informed of how to live those lives uh, last week we, we emphasised a significant amount in our time studying this uh, the first ten verses of this chapter the creation is evidence of God and we, we stand by that. We have to stand by that. In the vastness, the complexity, and the beauty, and the majesty of creation, we see proof of God. But if we only rely on creation to speak to us of how God wants us to live, we just wouldn't have a full picture, would we? And often it's because people have overemphasized creation and undervalued the word of God that we've seen things go wrong so many times through history. We've seen rises in worship of countless false gods through history where creation almost becomes God rather than God's word and there has to be a balance here to be informed by God's word and grow in grace and godliness. To really know what holiness and godliness is, we need God's word. Yes, we have a beautiful picture of God in creation, but we need scripture. Because to be holy and godly, we have to know what pleases God. And you open up the Bible. 
You go to places like Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where we get some big picture things come through. Uh, what does God require of you, O man, but to live, but to seek justice, to, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Go to the book of Ephesians, which we studied last year in Bible studies. We are to avoid darkness, we are to avoid sin, we are to step away from anything that isn't pure and clean and upright. How do we know those things aren't pure and clean and upright? We hear what's good in the Bible. Go to 1 John. It shows that there's a difference between people who love God and are children of God and those who are children of, of the devil. Hey, God's word is so important. Peter has emphasized God's word, the revelation of God through his word so many times because this helps us know what it is to live holy and godly lives. God's word teaches us how to value the things that God values. That includes things within creation, but it also includes valuing those behaviours and actions and attitudes that God values as well. While it may be tempting at times to fall into to fatalism about the world, the world is still valued by God, even though it's going to be burnt up. Maybe we just feel sometimes as if we just want this all to finish now. We, we want this burning of the world, this exposure of every work done on the world to happen right now. We want it gone so that we can enjoy that perfect peace that God promises Remember the patience of God as we live in holiness. We shouldn't be frustrated. We live enjoying the patience that God has given us, seeking to promote his word in every opportunity that we have. And it's not wasted effort. It's very likely that Peter had passages like Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 on his mind when he wrote this. If he knew of what was written in Romans chapter 8 and Revelation 21, these passages as well talk about a renewal of all things, a renewal where, where what is sinful will be purged away with fire and what is left will be renewed by God so that we can enjoy that for all eternity. Now that might sound just really out there and vague and what meaning does that have for us? It just sounds academic maybe. But if God values the world enough to talk about, yes, destroying everything with fire, consuming everything with fire, but then... Renewing it. Shall I ask this question, do we value it too? Do we value God's creation and the things that God has done enough to look after them? And that can be things within the world. That can be upholding those incredible truths given to us in Scripture that are challenged by people. The command that Adam received in the garden is to, to look after the earth. To look after it well. And there's a responsibility there for all people. In a non-political sense, every Christian should be a greenie. This is some of how we live in holiness and godliness. And rather than leave us falling into an attitude of it's all going to end anyway, this leads us to an attitude of hopefulness. 
Peter's anticipating here not just the destruction of the present universe, but its transformation, its renewal. She gives us something to, to ground our hope on while we look forward to the day of the Lord, his return. The day of the Lord, the day of God is to be hoped for because well, there will be a punishment of and a complete removal of sin. We're also going to see things renewed by God. As Christians, we share in Christ's sufferings. Not to the extent that Christ suffered, we can't confuse that, but we share to some extent in the sufferings of Christ. That can wear us down. That can leave us frazzled. That can leave us uncertain of how to respond to situations. That can leave us angry, bitter, jaded, callous. Can maybe leave us just not trusting God as much as we could because we've gone through this before. We know how to deal with this situation. As we look to the hope of renewal, we're encouraged in our struggle and our striving to live holy lives. We have the Spirit working in us to shape us every single day. We have the Spirit reminding us of the things of God's Word. And as we live holy lives, we're not just living holy lives for a short period of time until everything is just destroyed anyway and what was the point? We're living holy lives looking forward to that glorious, eternal renewal of all things where that struggle against sin will be over. The, the, the glory that we look forward to is one of absolute perfection. We need to keep looking towards the day of the Lord with eager anticipation, both for that revelation of God's glory in full, as well as for us being able to enjoy that glory that we are called to. And that outweighs the struggles that we face now. It doesn't say the struggles we have now do not matter, but it outweighs and it encourages us to keep going with God. To not compromise on things of faith. To not be dishonest because it would be easier. But to be holy and godly in all that we do. What an amazing, awesome thing to look forward to. And while we look forward to it, of that perfect holiness, and that perfect godliness, free from the struggle against sin, even now, even now, every single day of our lives, we are given opportunities to live lives of godlinesses and holinesses. Lives that show no matter what's going on, whether it be good or bad, that we have a God who is unchangingly steadfast and faithful to his people. And he is working in us and anchoring us in all things. Now thirdly, we come to our final point, hastening the day. Start of verse 12, I don't think is the easiest verse for us to wrap our heads around. It says, waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Now, I think this is a verse that causes a lot of confusion. Now, this wasn't a new concept at the time the New Testament was written. 
We see those who wait on the Lord will rise up with wings like eagles in Isaiah. We, we see this idea of, of waiting all through Scripture. And it's a good thing. There's so many blessings that come through that. Again, you go to verse 9. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a goodness in waiting. Where I think the confusion comes in, where I think this gets complicated, is that it seems to be Peter saying that through our waiting and waiting in those ways that please God and glorify God, we might be able to speed up the day that Jesus comes again. Now that's a little bit of a, a mind twister for us, isn't it? It wasn't an uncommon teaching at the time that Peter wrote this letter, uh, for the Jews in particular. But they weren't quite on the money with how they had this idea, and it's a slightly different form of it. But in his, uh, his commentary on Jude and 2 Peter, which I said last week, very similar, chapter 2 of 2 Peter and Jude, uh, a fellow called Borkham lists a, a whole heap of Jewish texts that were commonly taught at the time that Peter wrote this. Uh, there's lots you can look up there if you'd like to. But what was really put forward by the, the Pharisees and the scribes, also the, the Sadducees and the Essenes at the time, the four uh, real sects at the time, but uh, the, 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 the Sadducees and the scribes, they promoted the idea that if all of Israel would just be morally good, if all of Israel would keep God's law for two Sabbaths in a row, just two Saturdays for them in a row, the Messiah would come. And you might think that's not too hard. Remember going on a leadership camp in school where they chose the leaders for the next year. They're going into year 12. And the camp leaders decided that they'd tell us to be quiet if we made too much noise, but otherwise they were just going to start talking to us when we quietened ourselves down. Maybe 50 of us in a room. Might have been 60. It took about half an hour for us to realise that we weren't leaving that room, we weren't getting dinner, we weren't going to our beds until we actually stopped talking. The camp leader would tell us to be quiet. A few seconds later, the noise would start up again. And it starts increasing, increasing, increasing. And we see that it's actually really, really hard to do this. But this is what was put forward. Just keep the law for two consecutive weeks and the Messiah is going to come. And while the Jews might be upset at how Peter's presenting this, Peter's actually presenting this in light of the whole of Scripture. And Peter has also dealt with this in some way as well previously. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from, you, come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Like the similar to the Pharisees, but in a far more correct way, Peter is saying both in Acts 3 as well as 2 Peter chapter 3 that there will be relief sent from God, which seems to come as a result of how we conduct ourselves. And that, again, puts significance on how we live. As was answered so well in the children's talk, how we live really does matter. If we live holy lives, 
if we live godly lives, if we promote the gospel in the time until Jesus comes again, we can be used by God to speed, which is a, a variation of one of the words in chapter 1, verse 5, that we might speed the day of the Lord. Now again, that probably doesn't add a whole heap of clarity yet, does it? Maybe I'm just making the water even more muddy. Peter doesn't flesh out how this works. I don't believe we have enough biblical data to spell out exactly how this is going to happen. But what's interesting is there seems to be some sort of balance here between God's sovereignty and human agency. And our ability to work for the expansion of his kingdom and the glorification of his great and mighty name. So we consider where we're at in 2 Peter this morning, particularly going on from verse 9. It's amazing how this letter all ties together. As we consider this is from the patience that God has given to us. We see that he will not come until his, come in his glory until such a time as everyone who he's chosen for himself will reach the point of repentance. He's not going to come again until that time. And this point of repentance is reached when the Spirit works inside of us. Works inside of us, driving us to the foot of the cross, not in despair at the weight of our sins, but seeking forgiveness and rejoicing that the price was paid for us. Even here we have the Spirit working as well as our actions all, all going on there. So while we work to speed up the day of the Lord, we can't think that's just about us. It's not just about us. In the good things that we do for God, they are things that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, drives us to do. He leads us in those paths of righteousness. We see his sovereignty, his absolute control in all things. This certainly doesn't mean that we can be slackers because God is the one who is in control, but we have a response to use the time that God's given us well. And we see here from Peter the blessing of using that time well, that that return of Christ, a day we long for, might be sped up. What an enormous thing to get our heads around. And a lot of commentators boil this verse down to agree with Douglas Moo, who says, human acts are significant and meaningful. But God is nevertheless sovereign. What we do matters. What we do matters because we have opportunities every day to seek the face of the Lord more and more closely. How do we seek the face of the Lord? We commit ourselves to the Word, we commit ourselves to prayer, we commit ourselves to godly fellowship. We commit ourselves to opportunities to share the gospel, to evangelize to a world that lives in darkness. I've said this a lot through this series, and I just can't say it again. I can't not say it again, rather. Get into God's word. Get into God's word. 
as Christians, as we read the Bible, whether we're in school, whether we're out of school, whether we're working, whether we're retired, whether we're at uni, wherever we are, as we read God's word, how can we read that and not be motivated to live for God? We see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, we see people who, who scoff at the name of Jesus. We see people who scoff at the promise that God will return. We see people just throw doubt after doubt after doubt onto the Christian faith. As we read God's word, we are strengthened in our faith by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And if we strengthen our faith, why do we not share things contrary to those scoffers who seek to tear down the church? Why do we not seek to build up the church with how we live for God? Why do we not seek to go to those places where the scoffers are to tell them the truth and pray that God's spirit might work in hearts and minds that where there was darkness there might be light, where there were hard hearts there might be living hearts. As we get into God's word, God's word grows us in our confidence in God and God's word grows us in how we live for him and God's word grows us that we don't sit around doing nothing God's word grows us that we go and be active and we fulfill the Great Commission. The more we grow in God's word, the more we live out God's word, the more we live in holiness and godliness, which is a high expectation, but a right expectation for God's people, the more we will see God's goodness reflected in our lives and perhaps even in the world around us. Consider what he did for us. Consider the impossibility, yet the still realised circumstances of Christ's birth. Born of a virgin. God himself took on human flesh. God lived among us. He taught us. He shepherded us. He died for us. He was raised back to life. He gave us salvation by his life. How are we responding to that? Are we responding to that in selfishness or living out godliness and holiness? God isn't going to return until everyone who is chosen are his. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of God when he is working. There's nothing that can ever stand in the way of God. And while he is the one who does the work of that spiritual recreation within each one of us, I remind you of the, the parable of the seed growing. The farmer goes out and he plants the seeds. He goes inside at night, puts his head on the pillow, and God brings the growth. And that is a picture of what our godly, holy lives that we are called to live for should look like. We should be sowing the seeds of the gospel every single chance that we get. So that when God returns, when his kingdom is built, maybe it might even be a little bit quicker than we expected. Where we can enjoy perfect renewal of all things where others too can share that with us, to be free from sin, with no more tears, 
No more suffering. Just God's people in Him, enjoying His glory, His majesty, His love and His grace forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these short verses that we have read in 2 Peter yet give us so much reason to keep talking about you and so much to say about your wonderful works. Help us to not become apathetic, O God. Help us to be fervent in our service for you. Help us to dive into your word that we might see more and more what it is to live in holiness and godliness. May your spirit work within us that we might be more convinced of the things we read, that we might better live out those things we read, that your kingdom might grow through the work of your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name.